This is the Rational Reminder Podcast, a weekly reality check on sensible investing and financial decision-making for Canadians. We are hosted by me, Benjamin Felix, and Cameron Passmore, Portfolio Managers at PWL Capital. So this week is episode 145, and we have Jennifer Risher, who's the author of the book, We Need to Talk, a Memoir About Wealth. And this is a book we talked about, I think, on episode 138. So Jennifer Risher, she joined Microsoft at age 25 in 1991. And that's when she met her would-be husband, David. And basically, they hit the lottery of the dot-com boom and became wealthy during that period. And then shortly after that, David goes and joined a small startup that was selling books online called Amazon. So you can guess that they kind of won the lottery again. Anyways, Jennifer has written this book, which basically is a conversation about money for people and their situation. About wealth, about people who have wealth, who have more money than they need, maybe would be one way to to describe it. But the, the premise of the book, as the title might suggest, is that people with wealth just don't talk about this stuff. And even people listening to us make this introduction to the episode, like it's easy to see that topic and think, you know, that that's not an appropriate thing to talk about. Or how, how can people talk about the problems of the wealthy when there are so many problems of the non-wealthy, which is most of the people? And that's kind but, of the point of the book, which is why people don't talk about it. That, exactly. That is the problem. And it's not an instructional book. She doesn't profess to, as she says, tell people how to do rich right. It's simply a story that hasn't been told yet. She says it could have been told by many other people but she ended up putting the words to paper. There are a lot of lessons in her book and the research that she's done, not just for the most wealthy. There are a lot of lessons just just for any situation where there are relationships where the financial situations of each person in the relationship are different. Like having unequal wealth in the context of the book is in a lot of ways similar to having wealth. Well, same with the conversation about spoiling children. She argues it's not necessarily a wealth-based issue. Yeah. Very interesting. Anything else to add, Ben? Nope. Lots of good stuff in this conversation. Let's go ahead and play it. Jennifer Risher, welcome to the Rational Minder podcast. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. It's so great to have you. And and Ben and I both really enjoyed your book. And we mentioned it, uh, I think, eight episodes ago in episode 138. And so I I think many of our listeners have actually checked out the book ahead of this conversation. So off the top, Jen, can you tell us why you wrote this book? I certainly can. So, you know, I'm I'm very lucky. Um, When I was 25, I took a job at Microsoft and I met my husband, David, and I got stock options that ended up being worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Six years later, when Dave and I were married and expecting our first child, he took a job at an unknown startup that was selling books on the internet called amazon.com. And we were in our early 30s, the company went public and we really had more money than we could wrap our heads around. And I wanna say upfront that money makes life easier, but wealth surprised me. Having a lot of money doesn't look or feel like what Hollywood sells us. I felt the impact as a parent, as a sister, as a friend, as a daughter, it was painful to feel my parents disapproved of what I had. Eight out of 10 people with wealth grew up middle class or poor, and we're not talking about the emotional challenges. 
So it might be hard to think of wealth as a challenge that needs to be overcome, especially now when there's so much need. I mean, COVID is shining a light on racial and economic inequality. I should pay more taxes. Minimum wage needs to be higher. We need a stronger social safety net in the U.S. Reparations need to be made. There are so many policy changes that need to happen. But I think change also needs to happen at a personal level. And I want to help us move money out of the taboo category, out of the shame category, and get us talking to each other. Because normally, you know, if I have a challenge, I talk to my friends. If I want to figure out, should our 16-year-old have a curfew? I talk to everyone I know. <laughs> I get their ideas. I get their advice. I hear about their experiences. And just talking is helpful because it lets me know my challenge is normal and that it's valid and that it's shared. But the same doesn't happen with money. And I couldn't talk to friends about having a lot of it. So I thought, okay, I'll turn to books. But there are no books. So to answer your question, why I wrote this book, you know, first, I, I, my story is one I'd want to know about if it hadn't happened to me. But I also wrote this book for the millions of Americans like me who have more money than they had growing up. I mean, or they have more money than, they, than many in their extended family or more money than many of their friends. I'm sharing my story as a way to help other people understand their own. And my goal is not to show people how to do rich right. I don't have an answer for that. My story is not prescriptive. I'm offering up a story that hasn't been told, that explores things like how hard it can be to navigate a vacation with another family that doesn't share your resources, or how upsetting it is when you feel a friend's jealousy and you can't share what's really going on in your life. I'm telling my story to help other people. And I also am telling my story to get us talking because the more I talk about money, the more I realize it's not money that we don't talk about. It's the emotions behind the money that we avoid. And these emotions are universal. It doesn't really matter how much is in your bank account. If you have parents, if you have a sibling, if you have a partner, if you have friends, you know that money is a hard topic to discuss. We're afraid. We're afraid of hurting someone's feelings. We're afraid we won't measure up. We're afraid of rejection. We're afraid we won't sound knowledgeable. So we don't talk about it. And, and yet we all have some degree of money shame. We all have a money story, you know, that starts in our childhood. So my goal really is to help us have conversations that need to be had. One of the things that I appreciate about the book is it's, it's not just your story. You, you also discuss a lot of the things that you went through with other wealthy families and then give their their insight and then there's bits and pieces of their stories and that that makes the whole the whole experience of reading the book that much more powerful you mentioned that money makes life easier is there anything that wealth has provided you and and, and your husband david looking back that your younger not wealthy self would not have expected wealth to provide there's so much it my unwealthy self, you know, in high school, I think maybe everyone's done this. What would I do if I had a million dollars? Right? Like you ask yourself that question and then you start to fantasize. And of course, at the time, I thought I'd have a cute boyfriend and a fancy car. But really, I thought all that money would change everything, that my life would be perfect. And I think we often set ourselves up this way, thinking if only then my life would be perfect. And we do it a lot around money. 
you know, if only I could get that big promotion, we do it around other things too. You know, if only I could lose 20 pounds or if only I met the right, then my life would be perfect. I had an if only happen and I'm still me. (laughs) I still have insecurities. Uh, My feelings still get hurt. I make mistakes and I'm not in a fantasy land. Our view of wealth is so narrow and incomplete. You know, we see the Kardashians and the real housewives and the men of Wolf of Wall Street. And we know about people like Jeffrey Epstein or the parents who illegally tried to get their unqualified kids into top schools. We, we see the highly visible wealth, the stereotypes. But remember, eight out of 10 people with wealth grew up middle class or poor, and they are you. And they're hidden in plain sight, so much more ordinary and so much more diverse than what we see. And so that for me was a surprise. We have these fairy tales in our heads that make the reality kind of more just so different than what we expect. And I think one of the things, did you ask what wealth has given me or what it hasn't? I mean, I think there's both. I would never have guessed that I would be giving money away. I mean, just like... We all have a money story that starts in our childhood and and in our childhood, we either learn about giving or we don't. And when I was growing up, you know, my mom and I took canned peaches to food drives and clothes to the goodwill. But my dad generally had the sense that, you know, charities for chumps, you know, when we pass someone on the street, the idea that he was asking for money was sort of like, well, they're trying to take advantage of us. So I didn't grow up with the idea of giving. And so it's, that's been a journey in and of itself. And that's been a privilege and a surprise that I wouldn't have expected. And I I guess I expected there to be a lot of freedom and there is, I mean, there's so much opportunity. Money does make life easier, but it's not as though that freedom just sits there and you just can walk through this fan. You still have to make things happen. You still have to make decisions. You still have to take risks. It's not the fantasy that I had imagined. So when you were amassing wealth while at Microsoft, you could see the company and it was public. So I I suspect you had more awareness over how things might play out. But when David joined Amazon and then they went public, I suspect that was a little bit different. Can you talk about how that might have been different and what were some of your big concerns when that happened? Yeah, with Microsoft, I mean, this was 30 years ago and things were, you know, no one knew what a stock option was, even when I started at Microsoft. You know, suddenly all this, we had this numbers on paper that was just kind of getting bigger and bigger as the stock was going up. And so we had kind of been watching that, but it was, seemed so far out in the future. And then when David, I mean, it really was just this startup, this guy had started from his garage, you know, selling books. And he, my husband loves books. He loves technology. He thought, oh, this is a great opportunity to make a, a difference with books and technology. And then all of a sudden the company goes public and that was really shocking. I mean, I think, of course, it was amazing, but I think my real feeling was I got to keep this hidden. You know, people think the wealthy worry about other people liking them just for their money, but I wasn't worried about being liked for what I had. I was worried about being hated for it, and I just didn't want anyone to know. Do you think other families that went through a similar situation had a similar experience to you? I do. I, you know, even at the time, I mean, it was nice that we had friends who were at Microsoft who were kind of going through the same thing, but we never really spoke directly about money and and its impact and the impact within our families, with our parents and kind of worries around children. 
So there wasn't enough conversations about this. So it felt very isolating, the distance it can create within relationships. Again, it just felt quite isolating. On the outside, there was all sorts of crazy stuff happening where, you know, back at Microsoft, people were starting to cash in their options and buy houses. So you'd see people buying houses or cars or and then we sort of laughed that, you know, the Honda Accord that someone just bought was now a $300,000 car because the stock had you know, gone up so much. Right. We had a friend who bought a 900 square foot bungalow. And I think that's the most expensive house he's ever owned. It's crazy to think back like 30 years later, what you two were at the beginning of and what's happened in the past 30 years. Can you talk about the social dynamic between say Microsoft and Amazon friends who may have sold early and others that may have held on longer? Was there open conversation about that? Not really. There is definitely that. And then we had a, you know, a small group of us. We did well. We were very lucky. The group of people that I know still know from, from Microsoft has done quite well. So it, hasn't, it was never like people were going bankrupt or broke or whatever because they spent overspent. I wasn't, I don't know any people like that. The most part, you know, at, at Microsoft, it really was frowned upon to be too glitzy. I mean, Seattle is a pretty kind of low key place. And so there wasn't a lot of overspending and flashy spending, or that was just kind of not the way our, the culture was. So I, not many people kind of, you know, blew all their money similar at, at Amazon. I mean, people were working really hard too. So they didn't have time to really spend a lot of money. And that, that's true. You mentioned in the book that in the, in the early 2000s, when the Amazon share price was, was dropping along with everything else, also pulling your net worth down, because as you mentioned, a lot of that was in Amazon. But you mentioned in the book that you weren't too worried because you felt that you had enough. Now, enough is a hard concept because humans always want more. What convinced you at that time that you had enough? Enough is tough. That is, yeah, you know, actually, I don't think there is ever enough, just as there's no perfect. These things are kind of illusory. It's all, and it's very interesting because it's so relative. I mean, back when you know, I was talking about that, the, the high school kid that I was dreaming of a million dollars, you know, once you have a million dollars and there's $2 million and once you have $2 million and there's 10, I mean, you can find yourself, there's never enough. There's always more and there's always less. And I think it takes realizing that, that you're not going to find enough outside of yourself. I mean, there, you can be spending your whole life chasing after enough. And I realized that I didn't want to do that. That was not where you know, happiness was going to be found. So I really made a conscious decision and I really looked around like, yeah, we have enough, more than enough. And it was a conscious choice and a mindset that I had. And that doesn't mean to say that, that, that it doesn't come back and there's not moments where I feel like a little panicked or a little like, oh, do we have enough? I mean, that, but then I just remind myself again. And I think it's important for people to do that, to, to really look at what they value, what their goals are, you know, what they have in their life and, and look at the positive and feel the abundance rather than always chasing more. To tie this back to the previous question, did having enough have any relationship with whether you continue to hold or sell shares in Amazon? Well, so I mean, now I think our focus is so changed. I mean, when we were, when that all that happened, we had young kids, we were a young family. Now our kids are out of college and our focus, my focus, I mean, both of us, you know, we want to do good in the world. We want, and we have this 
this added tool that we can use. So now it's like, yeah, that, you know, I'm not looking to how much more we can have. I'm looking to how we can kind of make a difference and have an impact and, and use our money to help others. Um, my husband started a nonprofit 10 years ago and works full time on helping people have access to books. He, he shared that love of books and technology and, and created a, a nonprofit called World Reader, getting digital books into the hands of kids throughout the developing world. And now with COVID, there's an education crisis here in the United States, and he's partnering with people here and bringing World Reader here to, to help kids continue reading and continue learning. So I think that feeling of enough is definitely there because now it's like, how can we give to others and focus on returning some of the money that we have to the world? So you and David met before you had all this wealth. And you mentioned two great quotes, enough is tough and feel the abundance. So given the fact you met before you had the wealth, any advice for couples who may have different definitions of enough, even before they think they have enough? Like how do they have this conversation and be prepared for what economically might happen? Yeah, you know, I feel fortunate, even though Dave and I have slightly different views of money and ways of dealing with it, that we share common values and common goals. And I think that's what's made it easy for us to navigate this because we we pretty much agree on kind of where we want to be and what, how we want to walk through the world and, and live our lives. And, you know, it's hard in any relationship. It's a, it's a negotiation. And so our people when one person feels that they have enough and the other person doesn't, I mean, that's a, that's a tricky negotiation in, in a marriage, in any aspect of a marriage, right? Um, do you want to have another child or do you want to have children or, you know, do you want to go on vacation or do you not want to go on vacation? Do we need a second home? All those kind of conversations are, are about values and what you care about and how you want to live your life. And I think money is a real, it's, it can be, I mean, it is, I mean, tech, technically research shows us that it's a source of stress in relationships. And so I think the key is being transparent, talking about it, being open about it. You know, people don't talk enough about money. It's, it's such a taboo subject, but it doesn't have to be. And we need to move it out of the closet and, and give it light and, and talk about it like we talk about every other thing in our lives. Yeah, I think couples need to, to talk and work through kind of when when one feels, you know, I'm thinking like about a couple who she feels that she has, they have enough and he still wants more. He's still seeking. So he's, you know, still working nonstop, but it's not really for him about the money. I think he doesn't feel like he's been successful enough or he's still seeking the success. And, and, you know, is that going to tear a couple apart? It could, does she kind of support him in the work he's doing or does she, so it's just a, it's a negotiate, it's a constant negotiation. I've, I've been married for what, 25 years, and it's a negotiation. What have you found in talking to other wealthy families regarding that, that concept of enough? Do people with wealth generally feel like they have enough, or do you think that there's a lot of wealthy families who are still hoping for more? Well, I'd say, unfortunately, people don't feel like they don't feel that abundance. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a problem. <laughs> I mean, it's a problem for them, how they feel, you know, day to day. The research shows us, I mean, John Rockefeller was always wanted a little bit more. He never had enough. And he was the most, he was the wealthiest man in modern history. There's a study out of from the Center of Wealth and Philanthropy at Boston College that was uh, sponsored by the Gates Foundation. This was in 2008 that kind of talked to 165 wealthy families, all, you know, the medium 
income was like $78 million. And did they have enough? No, they wanted, you know, 25% more Then they'd have enough. And I think we do this to ourselves. I think it's a, it's a travesty really that we do this to ourselves. I mean, there's always going to be someone with more and there's always going to be more out there. But if you want to spend your life chasing that, I don't know if you're making a good choice. There's a story in your book where you take your concerns about raising your kids in a wealthy household to your financial advisor. And I believe you came back with some estate planning advice. What do you think a financial advisor can do to help you with your conversation about wealth with your kids? First of all, just acknowledging that this thing that's supposed to be only positive has a lot of challenges to it and that the questions and the issues and the complexities that come up are real. Not only acknowledging that, but I mean, I think one of the things that we wanted to know is, you know, what are our peers doing? What are other people like us doing? And because we're not talking to each other, I mean, and this is another, this surprised me too. I thought, oh, you know, when you have wealth, you're suddenly in this big sparkly private club and you're sharing financial secrets. And no, you're in this very strange, silent space where you don't know what anyone else is doing and you can't talk about money because that's not, it's not okay. And it's certainly not okay to talk about having a lot of it. And research shows this too, that people with wealth really don't talk about it, but we should be. And I think advisors can help us do that. And advisors telling us what our peers are doing, or even better than that, connecting us with other people like ourselves, maybe even giving us a, a script or several questions to discuss together. In my book, I have questions at the end of every chapter. I mean, even like give a couple of couples my book, have them read it and you know, come together and talk about the issues that I bring up because it's so it's such a relief to hear other people's stories. It normalizes what you're going through. It validates, but it also helps you learn because with other things, you ask other people, you talk about things and with, with wealth, you don't. So advisor can connect people who have this similar situations going on, connect them. The other piece is philanthropy. I mean, people also don't know what to do around philanthropy a lot of times, and it becomes a source of stress. And if financial advisor has so much ability to help people through that, that whole process of like finding out what, what do you value? Where are your passions? Where are your interests? And then helping people find nonprofits and organizations that are, are working in the, the area of their interest, introducing them to that, to those nonprofits, helping holding them their hand and helping them start to actually give because it, it takes time and people, your net worth and how much you give are not connected. You have to start with a thousand dollar gift or a $5,000 gift. And then your financial advisor needs to come back and say, let's, let's do a little more. Let's, let's explore this other nonprofit and, and help them build relationships with, with nonprofits. There's so much I think an advisor could do to help people who really don't know what they're doing in the space of learning about other people like themselves and also working with philanthropists or working with nonprofits. Has the process of writing this book or maybe now having the book opened more doors for you to talk with other wealthy families? Like, is this a, an easy foot in the door to have these conversations now that you've got this piece of public work out there? Absolutely. You know, I'm finally out. It took me 14 years to write this book. And Towards the end of that process is when I thought, oh, I need to interview some other people and, and include their voices to add different perspectives to my story. And even then I was nervous. I, I was scared to reach out to people and ask them to talk to me about having a lot of money. 
And I really had to fight through my fear. But when I sent that email to a couple of acquaintances, just talking about my book and asking if they'd talk to me, I mean, the response was amazing. People said, I think about these things all the time, but I never talk about them. So just opening that door, the conversations that we had, we got together and we talked about our kids and we talked about our parents and we realized, oh, we're not alone. We have so much in common and we have so much to learn from each other. So now that I'm out talking, I've gotten so many amazing notes from people thanking me for writing the book, saying that my story resonates, that it's so helpful to hear that all my feelings are, I'm not alone. I mean, that sort of sense. So yeah, I, and, I, and that's my goal now is really to help us start conversations because we can connect and we can learn from each other. And then I think it may sound far reaching, but I think we can also fight income inequality through talking and making this really shining a light on the reality of wealth because our silence has a lot of power. Our silence keeps the status quo in place. It keeps us from examining our relationship with money. It allows us to stay in our bubble unaware. And, you know, when there is a large and influential segment of the population that isn't talking to each other and feels estranged, we're probably not at our most empathetic or generous, and we're probably not holding ourselves accountable or inspired to make change. So I think it's important for us to talk as people, as individuals, to learn from each other, but also I think there's more that can happen here. I think we, this is not a society I want to be living in. It's too, there's too much disparity. And I think we can help bring that together by conversations that, that just aren't happening right now. One of the other things that I think comes up with wealthy families, and when we've talked about it a little bit, but I want to get a little bit more specific, is just, just concerns around raising children and how the children are going to be raised what are some of the biggest concerns that you and David had raising your kids in, in affluence and what have you done to, to deal with those concerns? Yeah, this is the question I get all the time. Well, how do you raise kids that aren't spoiled? And I think now I, there is this huge myth out there. It's part of the whole myth of what wealth is. It's the spoiled rich kid. And this spoiled rich kid is so big in our psyche. I don't think it exists. I think we are so fearful of this. I mean, no one wants to raise a spoiled kid. And then you add wealth to that and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to raise a spoiled rich kid. I lived with this myth for decades. I was worried about, you know, spoiling our kids, but that's not, I think if you live your values, your kids are watching you and it's not, you know, sitting your kids down and telling them your values. It's day to day, week to week, year to year, your kids are watching how you interact with other people, how you think about things, how you move through life. I mean, going to the grocery store, you know, when you drive up to the grocery store and someone steals your parking spot, what do you do? Do you feel entitled to that? Are you yelling? Are you gracious? However you react, your kids are watching. You walk into the grocery store and they see you making choices and trade-offs. In fact, that's a teachable moment. Are you going to buy the tomato sauce? You know, how are you thinking about the, the price of things and the quality of things? And, you know, they're watching those decisions you're making. They watch as you go to the meat counter and you interact with the person there. Are you respectful? Are you generous with them? Are you, you know, how do you interact with other people? It's a lot about attitude and gratitude. So everything in your day, you're, you're kind of showing your kids what you value sitting around the dinner table. What do you talk about? What are you proud of about your day? You know, what are you worried about? 
So I really believe that if you are living the way you want your kids to be to live, that that's how you kind of raise kids that, that aren't spoiled. And I think we need to get rid of this, this whole myth of, of a spoiled rich kid. Money is not what spoils kids. It's parents <laughs> and the kids can get spoiled no matter how much or how little you have. It's the way you interact with, with the world and with your kids. Wow. That's really interesting. Yeah, that is really interesting. There's almost, there, there's not being spoiled. And then there's like, you, you've talked about a few things like solving wealth inequality, or at least improving it and philanthropy on the maybe opposite spectrum of not spoiled. And I know you said earlier that you're not trying to tell people how to do rich, right. But do, do you think there are things that you can be teaching kids specifically about using wealth in a positive way, as opposed to not just not, not being spoiled, but how do we take this wealth and make the world better? Are there ways that, that wealthy parents can talk to their children about those issues? Yeah, I, again, I think this gets back to, to what I said earlier. It's really modeling. Your kids are watching you. So they've watched my husband spend the last decade focused on helping kids in the developing world get access to books. All his time every day working on World Reader. He's a co-founder. He's now the CEO. He works nonstop on this. And so they're, they're seeing that they've watched, you know, they've grown up with mom's book. I've been writing my book for, for a long time. They've seen me work in the school and they, you know, they like when I come in or they used to, at least when I was, when they were little, come in and help in their classroom and, and be part of the school. They see what we do. And I think that is the most powerful lesson and it's, you know, I said before, it's about attitude and gratitude. Yeah, we still, we get to go out to eat. We get, we've done a lot of traveling, but when we do those things, my husband and I are so grateful and we, and they hear us talking about how, how lucky we are and how fortunate we are to be able to travel. They've, and, and traveling too has been, you know, a, a source of learning for them because we, you know, we spent time in China and we stayed in a dormitory for two weeks and we taught in a school so they were part of you know teaching in a kindergarten in china and when we went to vietnam we had purchased a house for a family and we went to that house and we had lunch with the family and we helped finish painting the trim so they have experienced they are very privileged and very fortunate but they also have you know have seen different ways of living we lived abroad for for many years so they know that there's a bigger world out there and i think that's important I'm really curious about these conversations you have with other people. And I'm curious if these conversations changed how you and David made different decisions or did it help give you confidence in your own decisions? Like, did you go into these conversations trying to learn things or was it more about just experiencing other people and their situations with help, which helped you make your own decisions? Were you going out trying to get an answer to a certain specific question you may have had? Or is it more just to find a place to have a sounding board to think through different issues that you and David may have been wrestling with? Well, it wasn't really until our oldest daughter was going away to college that we really talked about money with anyone else and really had serious, honest, open conversations. And, you know, I was writing the book and, all the, and I was really feeling overwhelmed. We felt like we had to really talk in more depth to our kids. And I was really worried again, you know, this spoiled rich kid is still an entitled kid is still in my head. And I also feel like it's a lot of pressure for a kid to know that they have a lot of money. So I, I just didn't know how to talk about it. And it just felt overwhelming and I had no model for it. My husband, and I just sent a note to a couple other couples and said, will you sit down with us and talk to us about how you talk to your kids? And here again, I mean, 
there's definitely a pent up energy around wanting to talk about these things because the emails came back so fast. Yes, we'd love to talk to you. And then when we sat down to dinner, we spent two hours over dinner talking about how they had kind of handled money with their own kids. And it was so helpful. Like one couple talked a lot about, they, they thought a lot about housing. They had three kids and they were trying to tailor gifts to each of their children around housing. And then they kind of realized that, no, they wanted to make it equal to all the children. And then they shared that they had given this amount of money to each of their kids. And one of them had bought a big house and the other had bought a smaller house and put some money in the bank. And then the third hadn't yet purchased the house. But just hearing about other people's thinking and experiences is so helpful. I mean, that's, it kind of made it less overwhelming. And another couple told us about how they had their kids meet with their financial advisor alone and talk about, you know, that they had to trust and they'd written a formal letter to each of their children explaining that the money is theirs for them to use in any way they wanted. And, you know, it, it felt very formal. They also talked about how they were, had put money aside for their kids' college. And I like that concept. So, you know, we picked pieces that, that worked for us, and it, but it really helped to kind of normalize and validate our own feelings around this. And then when we talked to our kids, it just felt like any other conversation, sort of put money in its place. And so we told our kids that we had put this money aside for their college and that's how we were paying for college. And then we told them that they'd, we'd also put some money aside for them in a trust. And it was just a normal conversation. And it was just such a relief to have that conversation with other couples. But those conversations aren't happening as much as they, they should. And I think, again, back to the financial advisor, if a financial advisor could help set that up for other clients that they work with. And it's funny, I, I think back to 30 years ago, if, if I would have been horrified to think of that, of doing that. But if I had done that, it would have been such a good thing for me to help normalize the money instead of just hiding it. So if, if our financial advisor 20 years ago had said, here, read this book or here's some questions. I want to you know, introduce you to this other couple. I'm going to, you guys go out for dinner and have at it sort of thing. That would have been so helpful. I wish that it happened. And I think that that should happen for other people. You mentioned when you were talking about why you wrote the book, the, the potential for wealth to affect relationships. Can, can you describe some of the ways that wealth has affected relationships in your life? Yeah, I'll, I'll share some stories. A friend of mine, a year after, if it's a good friend of mine, and she doesn't have the same resources that I do, but a year after the fact, she told me, you know, I almost had an invite. We didn't almost didn't invite your family to join ours to see this Cirque du Soleil show. And I said, really? Why? She said, yeah, I agonized for weeks. I was worried that if I asked you to join us, you'd only want to sit in front row seats and our family can't afford that. And I felt terrible. I hated to think of her worrying about the finances. Our friendship meant more to me than front row seats. Didn't she know that? Yeah. But I was so glad she trusted me enough to talk about money. For sure. Having that conversation really brought us closer. It made me feel closer to her. It also opened my eyes to how out of touch I could be and how unaware and how in my own bubble, which is another reason that conversations are so important. I'll share another story. This is, a, again, a friend who's middle class. She told me how she and her husband had driven the same car for many, many years. And she said, you know, when that thing finally broke down, I bought an Audi Q5. She'd always wanted that car. And she loved the car. And she was excited about the car. But then she was, when she was thinking about visiting her sister and driving up in the car, she said, I, I was worried about being judged. 
So in her mind, she heard her sister saying, ooh, aren't we fancy? And then in her mind, she started to justify the car saying, you know, it was used, it wasn't that expensive. So even before she saw her sister, she was making assumptions and telling herself stories. What if she'd actually talked to her sister? And I think we do this all the time to ourselves. We tell ourselves stories around money and we have ideas that aren't necessarily true. And you know, when, we, when you don't talk about something, it tends to loom large and take on a life of its own. So I'll share one more story. This is between me and my brother. And I have a brother who's two years younger than me. And when he graduated from college, he went into the Peace Corps. And then he got a master's in Spanish and became a high school Spanish teacher. And this is many years ago. He wanted to buy a house. And my husband and I offered him $20,000 for the down payment. But he refused our gift. He said he wanted to live within his own means. And this refusal hurt my feelings. I, you know, at the time felt like he was looking down at our money and my feelings were hurt, but I didn't say anything. And then a few years later, when he was getting married, Dave and I again sent a check and this time he accepted. This was a wedding gift. And then when his first child was born, we again sent money and he and his wife thanked us. And we began to send money every year. Over the course of many years, he stopped acknowledging the gifts. So I'd write a check in December and hear silence. It was like the money was sort of disappearing into a void. And I began to feel resentful and I felt like I was being taken for granted, but I didn't say anything again. And then, you know, I'm not proud to admit this, but I just a couple of years ago, just didn't send a check. In January, when we were communicating over email at the end of his note, he said, wondering if a certain year end check is just late in the mail. Is it? And I read that and I was shocked and angry. And of course, I knew we needed to talk. But again, it was not comfortable. And I really had to sit down and figure out how I felt. And we have to talk. And I got on the phone. And when we got on the phone, I said, you know, my feelings are really hurt that you haven't acknowledged our gifts. And he apologized right away. He said he hadn't realized that he thought that it was more comfortable for me if he didn't make a big deal of the money, which I completely understood because that's how we grew up. And then, you know, once we were talking and connected and, you know, two people who love and trust each other, that's when money was put in its place as a tool, not as something bigger than us, but as something that we could then talk about easily. I mean, really, once we had that connection, you know, I, he said, I don't need this money, but I really appreciate it. And I said, I don't care what you're doing with it, but what are you doing with it? You know, I wanted to know, I wanted to be part of his life. So talk, talking about it sounds like in, in a lot of those cases was a solution. There's a story in your book where you're, you're going on a trip with another family and you wanted to offer to pay for tickets, but you were, you were worried about bringing it up and you tried to and they rejected. Do you think in a case like that, having an open conversation is still the, the solution? I think in the most part, yes. I think as transparent as we can be, the better. I mean, it's not, and again, I want to say again, it's not easy because we're not used to, this is not a muscle that we've built. We don't know how to talk about money and it's, it's such a taboo and it's so considered impolite that we're fighting against a lot of social norms telling us not to talk. But I think 
we need to try and we need to push through that because as I've found, you know, on the other side of that conversation is usually a sense of relief, a sense of connection, and then a chance to really grow and learn. And it's kind of one of the more intimate conversations that you can have where you can really feel connected to someone else. Of course, there's going to be times when it's not going to go well, but that's the case always, you know, you can't always find that, that perfect connection, but I, I would encourage everyone to try Start by figuring out what you're feeling. What are you really feeling about this situation? Let's say a friend is always asking you to go out to a restaurant that you really can't afford. Or let's say your daughter buys a handbag that's not within her budget or doesn't fit your values. Or your in-laws are giving to your spouse's siblings, but they don't give any money to you. Or you go out with a couple and they're constantly talking about all the stuff they're buying and it's, it's annoying. So all these situations are things that we avoid, but I, I want to encourage us to not let those hang over our heads and, and avoid them, but to actually have a conversation around them. So, and I think it starts with figuring out what you're feeling and because money it is emotional and it brings up a lot of feelings, it, whether it's anxiety or intimidation or stress or jealousy or resentment or joy or pride, because it, it's just so much there. And so, you know, in the case of a friend always wanting to go to an expensive restaurant that you can't afford. Okay. What do you feel there? What is, what's coming up for you? Is it, is it resentment? No, actually it's shame. You're ashamed that you can't afford that restaurant. You should be able to, you have a good job. You know, so you're feeling ashamed. So figure that out. And then two, find a time that's mutually agreeable and emotionally neutral to have a conversation with that friend. And when you have that conversation, three, <laughs> is acknowledge that it's going to be uncomfortable. Give each other permission to fumble around. We don't know what we're doing. So we're going to get, it's going to get messy. So by acknowledging that this is an uncomfortable conversation to have, I think you can create a sort of a safe space where you can have this conversation. And then four, really listen, you know, spend maybe, you know, you get to talk for five minutes uninterrupted, share what you're feeling. And then your friend gets to talk for five minutes uninterrupted. And, and maybe your friend says, oh my gosh, I had no idea. Dinner's on me. Let's go. And I'll, I'll pay. Or maybe your friend says, oh, I don't care where we eat. Let's go somewhere less expensive. It doesn't matter. It might, you know, I want to spend time with you. Or maybe your friend says, wow, thank you so much for saying something. I'm in a lot of debt. I shouldn't be going to those restaurants either. So you really don't know until you have that conversation. And then at the end, you know, you'll, I bet you'll feel more connected and you can have, show your gratitude. Thank your friend for having that conversation with you. I have a question for you, Jen, about working. So in your research, as well as your own and David's experience, what have you learned about the role of working when work is truly optional in your life? Yeah, there's another fantasy. Like we always think, oh, if I didn't have to work, I'd sit on the beach or I'd <laughs> go out with friends. It would be just so wonderful. And yeah, it, yeah, for a couple of weeks, it really is very nice. And I think the fantasy of not having to work, it's big in our minds too. But work gives us a lot and it places us in society. It gives us a reason to get up in the morning. It gives structure to our day. It gives us a camaraderie with our colleagues. It gives us goals to achieve, a sense of purpose and meaning. It's much more than just a paycheck. And I, I felt that right away. And when, when I left Microsoft, I, my identity was really wrapped up in work. And I realized how much I was getting from work and, and then not having work. 
it can be very challenging, especially when in the U.S. we they, we kind of define each other through our work. The, often the, the second question someone asks you is, what do you do? What you do is is your work. And when you don't have that, it can be more challenging than than we realize to find that sense of purpose, because I think, you know, where does happiness come from? It does come from feeling a sense of purpose, making a difference, having meaning in your life. It comes from being generous with other people, ultimately from the connections you have in your life and, and your work connections are, are part of that. We've touched on philanthropy a couple of times. You mentioned in the book that your understanding of giving evolved over time after you had come into wealth. It wasn't like you immediately understood. Can, can you talk about what some of your biggest learnings are as it relates to giving? Yeah. You know, like I mentioned before, I, you know, I didn't grow up thinking that about giving money away. It didn't feel like there was any extra to give. So I didn't, it wasn't really until I got to Microsoft and I was surrounded by peers who were making charitable donations that I gave a small percentage of my paycheck to United Way. I gave $1,000 to Planned Parenthood. At first, it was just starting to give. And, and then it was giving to places that were giving to me. So I, we started to give to NPR and I was part of a mother's group when our first child was born. And I gave to that organization. And then the sort of the next step was when our kids were in an independent school. And, and that's a, a whole learning in and of itself. It's like entering a foreign world because Suddenly, I was learning a whole new language around giving. I was learning about development and fundraising and asks and stewardship and capital campaigns and endowments and all these things that I had not, knew nothing about. And at the same time, our financial advisor had said, you know, we, we had this Amazon stock. And there was a point where he suggested we put some money in a donor advised fund. And so this is a, a charitable vehicle where you can, you get your tax break up front, you put your money in and then you can give over time. And so that's when I learned, we put a bunch of money into the donor advised fund. And I learned that, you know, letting go of the money isn't the hardest part. Figuring out, you know, where to give felt really overwhelming. And again, this, this is where I think a financial advisor can really be helpful to people, helping them figure out kind of where they want to give and their passions and, and introducing them to, to different organizations. And for me at that time, I felt like I had to have a philanthropic strategy. I had to have done all the research. I had to do giving perfectly. I had to get it all right. And my fear of getting it wrong kept me stuck and not doing anything. And there were a lot of excuses. We had young kids and I, I, we didn't know what, what we were doing, but it took time to figure this out. And, you know, fast forward now. So last year at, during COVID, my husband and I launched this campaign and it really came out of just our hearts going out to nonprofits. I mean, we were experiencing it from the nonprofit side because David with World Reader, he had foundations that had kind of promised to give him money and they were kind of backing away because it was everything was so uncertain. And this was when the stock market was dropping and, and it felt like all the funding was just drying up and our hearts were going out to nonprofits and we wanted to help do more. And I was already kind of doubling down on places that I had already given, I was already giving to and it kind of accelerating gifts that, you know, I kind of given out three years, I was kind of giving immediately, but we wanted to do more to help nonprofits that, you know, because the need was greater than ever. So we thought we just need to start giving to nonprofits. At the same time, I've learned a lot about donor advised funds. So in the donor advised funds, there's a ton of money stuck there. People have put that money into donor advised funds, but it's not moving through. And 
there's $121 billion stuck in donor advised funds. And actually that number is now bigger than ever. It's, I think it's 140, if not greater money that's philanthropic charitable dollars not moving out. And so that's frustrating. And so we thought, well, how are we going to make our money go further? And how are we going to help kind of inspire people to start giving? So what we did is we we offered up a million dollars in the form of matching grants for anyone who moved half of the money out of their donor advised funds to nonprofits. And so we started the Half My DAF campaign and it was very successful. So we got a lot of press early on and our million dollars ended up moving a total of 8.6 million from donor advised funds into nonprofits in just five months. Wow. So we launched it in May and technically that's a huge success in terms of the numbers, but it also felt very successful in the, in terms of like the community that it created. I mean, donors were so thankful. They were like, this is the nudge I needed. I'm inspired to give. I'm sitting around the dinner table with my adult kids. We're talking about our values and where we want to give and having conversations that they otherwise wouldn't have been having. And then also the connection between the nonprofit and the, and the donor, it was such a great opportunity for a nonprofit to reach out to a donor and sit, tell their story, ask for a donation, and then have, tell them about the opportunity to get a matching grant from half my DAF. So it was building relationships between donors and nonprofits in a way that I think is so important. So we were thrilled by that half my DAF challenge and the success there. It's a very cool story. This was sort of a one-off thing that we thought we would do. And it was, you know, we started to get people saying, you know, when you do this next year, can I participate next year? And so now we have launched Half My DAF 2021. And so last year we had, we, we put up a million dollars and we actually had people join us in the matching pool side. So we ended up being able to give 1.4 million. This year we have over 3 million to give away. The people who matched us last year came in with more money. They had a good experience. They felt like it was leveraged and it was doing the right thing. So people who had given a hundred thousand last year gave us a half a million. And you asked earlier about our kids, you know, how they learn. And I have always said that, that they've kind of experienced it. And I think I can say with great pride that, you know, we got the best Christmas gift ever that they came to us and said they wanted to be part of half my DAF. They had talked to each other and then talked to our, our financial advisor, and they also have contributed money to half my DAF, and they wanted their money to go to specific causes. So this time, instead of just matching any gift, we'll match any gift, but then we also have specific money for racial justice, environment and climate, for education in underserved communities, and for reproductive health. So our goal, again, is to inspire giving, and people can give wherever they want, but if you're going to give to any of those areas of interest, there's more, more money there. Wow. Such a great idea. So there's a whole new generation of newly wealthy people emerging all over the place today. What is the one thing that you would share with them that you wish you had known 25 years ago? Yeah, I, I would tell them you're not alone in, in how strange this is and talk about it. Don't try and hide it because... I think there's this feeling of, well, for me, it was sort of like, if I talk about this, I'm going to, you know, in the name of connection, I wasn't kind of sharing what was really going on in my life, but that doesn't really make you feel connected. So if you're walking around, keeping things hidden, keeping a part of what's going on in your life hidden, it's exhausting and is not very fulfilling and you don't feel that connection. So 
it can be very uncomfortable and it takes time to kind of get used to a new wealth is, is can be can be challenging. I know it sounds crazy, but I think talking about it, getting conversations going as soon as you can is what people need to do. And I think here again, I, I call on the financial advisor to to help people through these emotional challenges that come up. And it's often within immediate family and, and between friends. And, and because, you know, what we care about most, what, what makes us happiest as human beings is our connections with other people. That's something to really think about and to focus on and, and keep those connections open and transparent as much as we can. You mentioned earlier in terms of what the, the wealthy can do to, to help improve society. One of the things you talked about was, was just talking about it and having these conversations. Is there anything else that you think that the, the wealthy as a group can be doing to, to move towards solving some of the issues that you've talked about? Yeah, I think, yeah, I'm so glad we have Biden Harris in the White House. I think we can vote in people who are going to I mean, there's so many people going without housing, without health care, without food. You know, there's an education crisis going on. This is not I am not happy with it. When, when there's people hurting in our society, we're all hurting. We're interconnected. We're, we're part of a bigger whole. And I would say we need to kind of advocate for paying more taxes. We need to advocate for for a society where, you know, there's a, a, a social safety net for everyone, advocacy, but also if we're not talking to each other, if we're not realizing our own privilege and coming up with ideas, you know, the conversation David and I had around COVID in the backyard, kind of, we kind of came up with this idea of half my deaf. There's so much more we can do um, in the philanthropic space, as well as just in our personal lives. I think if we're having conversations, I think that's a positive thing. Right now, there's just too much silence. So the more transparent we can be, the more we can put money in a, its place as a tool that we can use in society to help us all, I think the better. We all win when, when our society is healthier as a whole. This has been so interesting. We've learned so much about you, but I still have to ask you a final question, which is how do you define success in your life? I think it is being true to who you are, being as authentic and transparent as you possibly can be. So success is living your true self, living your, you know, what you value and having the courage to take risks. I mean, I, I think this book is, I'm surprised. I mean, it's, no one has, has written this book, but so many people could have. And I, and I'm realizing that because people are telling me how much, you know, they relate to it and how important it is. So I feel proud to be shining a light on this issue. And I, it's not about complaining. It's about saying, look, this, this is kind of the reality that no one's seeing. We're, we're seeing what Hollywood sells us, but we're not seeing the reality of, of millions of people. And we need to be talking to each other because our silence around this really does just keep the status quo in place. And I'm not happy with the status quo right now. I think we need a, a stronger, more equal, more just society. This has been a very interesting conversation, Jen, and thank you so much for being willing to, to join us and have this conversation, which is important. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Mm -hmm.